This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me to talk about federal politics. Then, journalist and scholar Later Hong Fincher joined me in the studio to talk about her new book, Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Revolution in China. We also discussed her previous work, Leftover Women, The Resurgence of Gender Inequality in China. Then finally, Christopher Browning, Emeritus Professor of History at the University of North Carolina, joined me in the studio to talk about his book, Ordinary Men, Reserve Police Battalion 101 and the Final Solution in Poland. He's here in Melbourne to deliver a lecture series at the Australian Centre for Jewish Civilization at Monash Caulfield. And you're tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, 102.7 FM on your dial. I hope you are using a wireless or at least you have one. I, f- I figured out that I actually have about four. I've just been hoarding radios Ben Eltham now joins me. He's from New Matilda and uh, talks about federal politics with me. How many radios do you own, Ben? Uh, Oops, sorry. Oh, hello. Hey. Yes. um, A couple. Yep, uh, at least a couple. At least. Plus probably your car. Car has a radio. Um, My car has a radio. Yep. Yep. Lots of radios. Terrestrial radio is great. It is. I feel like it has that ambiance, the kind of nice fuzzy. Oh, I love the crackle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just feels, feels good. Does yeah. it's, it's analog. Analog you know? is it's great. Analog, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I'm still a pen and paper gal myself in terms of everything, really. Oh, most definitely. Yeah, I've got a notebook. You do. Mm. Well, you are, and you're looking very um, analog today, Ben, with your very suave jacket and uh, tie. Well, it's autumn, maybe. I've, I've decided to to switch into winter mode. Yeah. So I've put the jacket on. Well, it is like freezing it's like 19 out there it's quite crisp actually it's autumnal yeah it is really nice now ben there's a lot that's been going on it's there's been also a lot of noise but i just want to pick up on um something which perhaps passed a few people by or maybe didn't depends if you were checking twitter probably um but uh on international women's day which was friday we saw a great number of uh triple r broadcasters taking over the airwaves which was lovely yeah fantastic see and yeah, it was really great listening to the R's on, on a Friday. It was. And uh, and now Scott Morrison proudly, <laughs> doing us proud every International Women's Day. Such a feminist he is. Um, uh, I'm really, really proud to say that he delivered a real corker on International Women's Day. He was at, I think it was like an event for resources or something but it was about women in resources oh women in mining Very yeah important. Yes, exactly absolutely and uh, and he said we want to see women rise but we don't want to see women rise only on the basis of others doing worse now that yes. seems like a little bit of a oxymoron slash massive caveat to the aim of gender equality well, yeah, I mean, I think every now and then someone says something that's literally 180 degrees wrong, and I think that was pretty much where ScoMo ended up yeah. on Friday. So, unfortunately... It's quite revealing, though. It is revealing, isn't it? Isn't it? You know, it's the, it's the view that, that many men have, I think, which is that they have no problem encouraging women in the workplace, for example, or in society, as long as their own position is not threatened. Mm. And, and I think that that really is a good insight into exactly... Why we need to blow up the patriarchy, basically. <laughs> I mean, 
you know, and it's part of this kind of magical thinking that we often get around gender equality, which is that somehow or other, you know, it's not a zero-sum game. But mm. the problem is it is, you know. If we're talking about the number of CEOs on the stock exchange or the number of women in parliament, you know, there's only a set number of people in the parliament. So if we have more women, then we probably need to have less men. And, you know, those of us who know a little bit about this stuff would suggest that that wouldn't be such a bad idea, would it? No. No. It really would <laughs> might actually be uh, an improvement on the current lot. So... Wouldn't be too hard, but that said, I, I do believe that women would improve the quality. Most women, not all. We can't really put all the pressure either on women to be perfect because, as we've seen, their male count- counterparts are far from perfect. Oh, no, absolutely not. You know, and look... It it is a really interesting point, though, you know, which is that oftentimes when we have these kind of policies around gender equality, we focus on fixing the women. We focus on the pipeline, as it's so-called, you know, that if we uh, train more women in training roles or get them through university, then they will just magically eventually come out the other end in positions of leadership. And, of course, that's just not how it works. At every stage of their career, women uh, are basically face bias, they face prejudice, and they drop out. And so you can sort of track it statistically, actually, in many industries. You often get pretty equal numbers of people leaving university. And, of course, by the time you get up to CEO or board level, there's only 5 6 7% women. Yep. And law is an example. There are even that particular area of study has been dominated by women. It's been around 60%, if not more, uh, female graduates for decades. And yet still at partner level, it is between 10 and 20%. So, you know, things aren't really changing and you need to, as we've said, share the power, which is clearly something which um, not everyone is no, no, and it's with. deeply threatening to men like Scott Morrison, I think, you know, and, and perhaps for obvious reasons. Yes, and um, I saw a funny uh, satiric take on that, which was the chaser saying or tweeting, Morrison sets target for Liberal Party to have 50% women, 75% men. Well, that's about right, isn't it? Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah, it's exactly my point, really, which is that the men do actually have to step back if the women are to step forward. Yes, and we did actually see uh, kind of under the radar a bit um, the curtain pre-selection occur. Julie Bishop's old seat now. She won't be the uh, sitting yes, member. Yes, Julie Bishop, of course, is standing down. She is, and we saw a woman replace her, Celia Hammond, um, who is... <laughs> amazingly a former university vice chancellor of course you know probably a bit overqualified well, for politics that's, that's in a, way. a very liberal sort of position to be isn't it you isn't know it? It's a, quite a she's actually quite a controversial candidate so yeah. she's uh, very conservative on social issues she was uh, anti the plebiscite anti-gay marriage um she's yeah, she's taken some quite controversial positions in the, in the past and uh, many people are wondering if indeed she's a little bit too conservative mm. for that electorate. Yes, people are wondering, um, uh, is an independent candidate going to appear from within the um, electorate, a popular, perhaps well-known person who might provide some sort of challenge? Well, all bets are off in the current environment. You'd have to say that's a possibility. Exactly. Now, Ben, just keeping on uh, the the gender topic 
for a moment. We did see Labor announce a national sexual and reproductive health strategy, which um, is quite refreshing to even have a strategy on that and have it publicised. And part of the package, interestingly, is to ensure that abortions are provided consistently in public hospitals throughout Australia. And by doing so, the Commonwealth, should Labor win government, would tie funding to the need to provide abortions. Um, If you get federal funding and you're a public hospital, you would need to ensure that you do provide them. Yes, this. Uh, I think this is a very progressive policy by Labor, um, announced by Tanya Plibersek last week. Um, finally, we're talking about free and open access to sexual health for the majority of Australian women. Um, as we know, Amy, um, there's whole parts of Australia where it's very difficult to get an abortion. Yep. Tasmania, for example, the entire state of Tasmania. Um, there are parts of Australia where uh, abortion is borderline illegal or um, still taken technically illegal um there are, there's also you know a, a great reluctance on behalf of many medical practitioners to offer proper sexual health and abortion services mm. and so this, and then to refer someone on if yep. they refuse that yep. person yeah still many religious and catholic hospitals refusing to offer these services so yeah i think this is really good by labor mm, it is and i was pretty surprised to see that only up to about 10 percent of abortions in australia take place in public hospitals and the rest are provided privately. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think it's it's one of those areas where, um, you know, it's been hiding in plain sight, to so, so to speak, where, mm. you know, that there's been long the stigma of, of these procedures have really prevented it from being taking its full place in our public health system. Yes, and we've seen it pop up as an issue, particularly in Tasmania at various points. Um, and in, in particular, we've seen that Labor has decided to build this is federal labour, if they win office, would build a reproductive health hub in Tasmania as part of the public hospital system um, to make sure that there is some, you know, access, equal access to this. Yeah. I mean, again, it shows you uh, how difficult it can be for people to access health in large parts of Australia. I mean, Mm. Tasmania is an entire state. It's kind of shocking, actually, that this hasn't been the case this far. Yes. And Scott Morrison, I find this particularly revealing, is that he really didn't want to touch the issue. He said it was too much of a politically charged context and that, quote, these are matters that are dealt with by the states and territories. I have no desire to overstep what the constitutional authorities are of the Commonwealth in these matters. I mean, to fob off this issue as a state-only issue when uh, the Commonwealth Government does provide health funding and also divvies out money from the GST to the states is pretty surprising. Yeah, once again, Morrison showing his religious proclivities there, I think. Um, You know, he's deeply reluctant to comment on this because I think he knows that he'll get himself into a lot of trouble if he actually does say what he thinks. So he's uh, basically hand-passed that off to the states. But, uh, yeah, there's no constitutional requirement that the states have to handle health. That's never been the case. It's always been a shared system. Well, it is surprising, though, that you would allow religion to get so um, caught up in policy that you won't even make a comment on it. Yeah, it's of a piece with the many concessions that we grant religious institutions and churches in this country, Um, concessions that we're now beginning to question, I think, particularly in the wake of the Royal Commission into Institutional Sex Abuse. Mm, Well, certainly having uh, tax-free status is one 
tech issue. Absolutely. I mean, some of these organisations are incredibly wealthy, um, the Catholic Church most notably, but many other churches as well. And yes, they don't pay tax. Mm. Now, Ben, um, Matisse Corman uh, has been, I guess, David Speared. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's very good. I'm gonna. I'm, I'm coining that now. Yes, um, that. He's been David Speared over wages growth or lack thereof, and when talking about why this is the case, why we've seen record stagnant wages growth, it's just either been the same or declining, uh, depending on what sector you're in. He suggested that this was actually a deliberate feature of the economy and the coalition's economic policy to ensure that wages um, did not grow. A rare outbreak of honesty from the coalition there. (laughs) And particularly from Matthias Cormann, who's usually quite good at deflecting difficult questions. Yes, every now and then the mask drops and we we hear what the the bosses really think. And, and of course, that's absolutely true from the government. That's absolutely what their policy has been really since taking office. They've absolutely been wanting to drive wages down to increase flexibility in the workforce um, and to try and uh, stack the cards in favour of employers. Uh, Remember that this was the government that cheered on the decision by the Fair Work Commission to abolish penalty rates uh, for millions of Australians working in retail and hospitality. Uh, this is government that's assiduously stacked um, the you know, officers and the judges on the Fair Work Commission to make it much more pro-employer. Um, and, you know, as a, as a simple matter of economic theory tr- as well, you know, if you, if you make it easier for employers, uh, if you make it tougher for workers and unions, then you will absolutely drive wages down. And, mm. and that's what's happened in Australia really over the course of uh, about five or six years now. And, and as, you, as you rightly point out, wages are now, in many cases, uh, they're growing so slowly that we're having something of a, a wage recession, you might say. And there was some interesting economic data out last week that said that Australia's in the midst of what we're calling a per capita recession. So GDP is growing now so slowly, it's growing more slowly than population growth. So the economy per person is actually shrinking at the moment. And I think this underlies some of the economic weakness and some of the problems the coalition is facing because the economy is not in great shape. You've got house prices falling, you've got ordinary people's wage packets barely growing, and um, people consequently aren't spending Mm. and uh, we have journalists on twitter trying to understand what life is like for those on the minimum wage yes i did see that uh the abc's emma alberici put out a perhaps misjudged quote Mm. trying to do some research asking if um, people on the minimum wage had had to run down their savings Um, she was greeted with a shower what savings yes but basically everybody replied nobody on the minimum wage has any savings emma alberici and um, yeah they're often in deficit. I think that's kind of indicative of how difficult it is for middle class and upper middle class people to understand how tough it is Mm. for people down on the minimum wage or lower, people on benefits, for example. It's really hard to get your head around. If you're on 200 grand a year, like Emma Alberici would be, I think it's actually almost impossible for you to understand the difficulties of paying the rent in an Australian capital city if you're earning 30 grand a year, which is what the minimum wage is. So the ACTU at the moment's got a campaign on to lift the, the minimum wage 
wage uh, by a substantial amount. They want to call it a living wage Mm. um, and to really lift the floor of the minimum wage up. And I actually think that's a really good policy. That's a good economic policy, not just to help the people at the bottom, but actually would help the whole economy because people down there spending the minimum, who earn the minimum wage, they tend to spend pretty much all of their income. Um, And so that would be stimulatory for the economy. And it would also, of course, help with inequality and things like that as well. Exactly. And where is Labor on this? Have they indicated whether they would be on side if they won government? Labor is on side, but they're refusing to sort of explain how they do it. So at the moment, Labor continues to say that they support the independent umpire, the Fair Work Commission. Well, I don't think they're going to get a lot of joy out of the Fair Work Commission, of course, because the Fair Work Commission, as we said, has been stacked by the coalition really quite badly. So it's really quite biased in favour of employers at Mm. the moment. So I'm not quite sure what Labor's going to do there, short of trying to maybe... I don't know, abolish it and start again or, or like, just um, stack it full of union people, but that will take years. So, um, you know, unless Labor wants to actually legislate uh, to lift the minimum wage, which they could do, assuming they had the numbers in Parliament, of course. Um, So beyond that, you know, they'd have to wait for the Fair Work Commission to actually hand down a decision. And uh, we saw that Labor when in government referred uh, penalty rates to the Fair Work Commission and got burned... Yes, I mean, something of an own goal there, really. Mm. I mean, you know, and this is the problem, I think, with the architecture of the current industrial relations system, which is, by the way, labour architecture put in there by Julia Gillard. Um, You know, they've got a lot of faith in the independent umpire, but the problem is the independent umpire often gives decisions that are pretty anti-union and anti-worker. So it's something of a conundrum for Labor, and I I think this is an issue that's not going to go away, particularly if Labor wins. Yeah, well, the pressure, particularly from unions, will be massive, as well as obviously other lobby groups. But there's things Labor could do as soon as they take office. They could raise the... raise salaries for public servants, for example. Mm. They could pay the Defence Force more. You know, they could pay Commonwealth federal workers a lot more and that would help the economy broadly. Um, So, you know, I'd like to see Labor get on board with basically raising wages across the economy. That would be a great great move. raising Newstart. That would be the other thing that they could do that they haven't committed to so far. And I think that's a glaring inconsistency with their current position. It is pretty concerning that they haven't yet come out and said that. I do hope it eventually happens because we've just seen pretty much every group except the Liberal Party be on board with it being raised. And yet Labor hasn't said yes or no yet. Labor remains deeply uncomfortable with welfare in general and still holds to this kind of old school position that the best welfare is a job. Yes, the dignity of work. Dignity of work, something you will often hear even from Labor people. Yeah, Julia Gillard loved that line. Yep, she was always talking about people who got up early and uh, went to work, got in their utes and wore their Mm high-vis and... That's all great. We love all of the tradies and we do love people who get up early. Um, I got up early myself this yes, morning, Amy. Same. <laughs> um, but, you know, it doesn't really solve the problem that the people who are happening to be on welfare, on benefits, uh, have had a massive, massive reduction in their spending power over the last two decades. Mm-hmm. And they're now living in poverty, you know, and, and that's disgraceful for a first world country like Australia. It doesn't need to be the case and we could change it really tomorrow. 
Easily. And there are a range of reasons why the the majority of those people who are faced in that situation haven't had equality of opportunity. They often have had great social disadvantage depending on the circumstances of which they were born into. Oh, we need to go further. We need to pressure Labor to get rid of the entire mutual obligation system, mm. which is, frankly, a load of rubbish and needs to be abolished. You know, parents doesn't next... Work. doesn't work. It's punitive. It imposes all sorts of misery on the people unlucky enough to be in the system. Uh, parents Next is a good example, which is this yeah. horrible system that punishes parents on benefits. Uh, robo-debt, we've talked about robo-debt over the years on this show. It's still going on, mm. still happening. Uh, you know, the, the job network, a, a vast billion, billions and billions of dollars goes into the job network provider system. Yeah, entirely it's outsourced. basically a rort. I mean, it's 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 hard to justify really on any level of commonwealth probity or spending so yeah i'd say get rid of a lot yep get i'm with you ben yep <laughs> Chuck it out it. And come on again. labor do something pull yeah. your finger out of your bum exactly they're willing to put their neck out for a range of other causes why not this one if they're willing to offend very rich people with franking credit yeah. refunds then i think they could do the right thing and actually reward people at the bottom of the pile who are doing it super tough in part because of labor decisions Yes, couldn't agree more. Ben, it's been great speaking with you and uh, I think we're going to gloss over this week the Nationals' leadership. Very briefly, the Nationals are in crisis uh, because... they're the nationals i think is the yeah. easiest way to explain it it's pretty hard they're like a bunch of chooks running around the the chook yard not knowing whether they're coming hither or thither and there's not really much to say beyond that it's not a lot of logic at all um, as i as we were saying off air it's quite a lot of posturing from barnaby joyce who's basically said i am the truly anointed leader who was elected at the election that is not actually how people become leaders of their parties. Yes, this is all a dummy spit by Barnaby Joyce who wants to be leader again, despite the fact that I think that would be an electoral disaster for the Nationals. Um, It's also been driven by some policy issues. Some of the Queensland Nationals want to get a coal-fired power station up in Queensland Mm. um, for reasons best known only to themselves. Um, And so that's causing tension with the Liberal Party, which uh, the moderate Liberals, of course, don't want to be seen to be funding a coal station at this point of the electoral cycle. They're not even willing to say the word coal. No. And it's it's also an an intensely stupid idea because, of course, a new coal station will be highly expensive and more expensive than renewable energy. So it it truly is uh, posturing, as you say. Yes. Uh, We'll keep an eye on whether anything actually happens, but it's probably just hot air at the moment. Yeah, I mean, all it's doing is soaking up oxygen Mm. that the government desperately needs to try and put some policies out to try and win voters back. Uh, in the meantime, they're just fighting amongst themselves. I mean, it's the worst possible look for the coalition, actually. Yeah, it's not great timing. Ben, thank you for coming in to talk about federal politics and have a great week. (laughs) Thanks, Amy. I've been speaking with Ben Eltham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and he joins me regularly to talk about federal politics. And you're tuned to Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins on 3RRR FM in Melbourne. Now, I'm delighted to have with me in the studio journalist and scholar Leita Hong Fincher, who recently moved to New York but spent a great proportion of her time studying in China. And she's written her second book called Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China. And she also wrote a book previously, which is also fascinating, called Leftover 
over women, the resurgence of gender inequality in China. And later joins me now. And hello there, later. Hello, Amy. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for coming in. And congratulations on some what really important research and writing that you've been doing. And it's great to understand better the situation of women in China and where the Gender Equality Project is at. First up, I'd really like to highlight your first book, which I believe was based on your uh, PhD that you received. Yes. So that's about leftover women. And could you share with us this concept, which is quite commonly used and referred to in China by women who might be considered leftover and also by the government who have also been talking about this concept and pushing it really, haven't they? Sure. Well, uh, when I was doing my PhD in Beijing, I was at Beijing uh, at Tsinghua University um, and doing research actually on um, how women are shut out of the real estate market when they're buying homes. But then that's when I came across this term shengnu, leftover women, for the first time. And um, it was extremely widely used. But when I looked into it, I realized that it wasn't just floating around organically in society, that it... I looked at all the propaganda coming from official Chinese news outlets like Xinhua News and People's Daily, and I came to the conclusion that this is a propaganda campaign that's deliberately orchestrated by the Chinese government. Um, uh, Leftover women uh, officially was defined as being a woman over 27 who is single. And it was targeting urban, educated, single women. Um, And even though the official definition of the age was 27, it actually also encompassed women who are younger than that, in their mid-20s or even younger, who are not married. And it was an attempt really to shame single women and to really strongly push them into getting married, to Mm. stigmatize them. And the propaganda was everywhere, was really insulting and sexist. Um, And so that's what that term means. And at the time, I was uh, arguing that it it was uh, part of an effort to push these educated women who are naturally shying away from marriage. They don't want to marry that young anymore to get them to marry. But in recent years, I realized that that's kind of just building up to this new drive to get women to have more babies. Mm. So it's related to a really new recent phenomenon um, at the beginning of 2016 when the Chinese government passed uh, a new or or enacted a new two-child policy after over 35 years of having a one-child policy. So they're building on this, you know, so-called leftover women Uh, marriage promotion campaign. And so after the women are pushed into getting married, they're now being pushed into having two babies. So that's what that that's all about. Mm. And in terms of the reason why the government jumped on this, you say, you know, they want more children. I saw a lecture that you gave where you were referring to the fact that the government actually set out in their own terminology some of their rationale for needing an increased population and that they actually were seeking a higher quality population, a more skilled population so that they can strive and improve as a nation. Is that a new development in terms of their aim to create a more 
advanced society. Yeah. I, you know, the thing is that this is part of their long-standing tradition of eugenics in China's population planning policies that date back quite a few decades, actually. But eugenics is in part why I believe they came up with this propaganda campaign targeting or, or shaming so-called leftover women starting in 2007. Mm. Um, so at the beginning of 2007, China's state council, which is like the, their cabinet, made a really important uh, policy announcement saying that the, that China faced a severe problem with the so-called low quality of its population and that it urgently needed to upgrade population quality. And so they then named a whole bunch of ministries that should be in charge of so-called upgrading population quality. Mm. And this this has been part of China's population planning policy for a long time, though. That So it's not just about controlling the quantity of the population. It's also about creating, engineering the right uh, so-called right, ideal kind of population that is, you know, considered to be high quality, meaning they're capable of being more highly educated. They're definitely Han Chinese in mm-hmm. ethnicity. Um, I write a bit in my new book, Betraying Big Brother, about how the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, for example, are considered so-called low quality. And there's been, you know, a very different kind of population planning policy directed at trying to get Uyghur uh, women, Uyghur Muslim women to have fewer children while getting Han Chinese so-called high quality women to have more children. But this has been a long-standing part of China's population planning uh, for quite a while. In 2007, they made it very explicit with this state council announcement saying we need to upgrade population quality. And so uh, so in my view, I made the argument that the government was, was targeting educated Han Chinese women who were um, increasingly pushing off marriage. They weren't marrying um, as early anymore. They, they also didn't want to have as... Um, you know, didn't necessarily want to have babies anymore. And so uh, so it, it's very much a part of trying to sculpt the ideal kind of population. And I recall a uh, part of the book that you mentioned that the government was also using various tactics to shame women, like, for example, um, when whenever there might have been birth defects, um, they suggested it was because women waited too long. They weren't in the prime of their child-rearing lives because they'd been off having a career or getting better educated. Right. Yes. I mean, it's completely unscientific, but there are, there continue to be to this day, all sorts of propaganda warning women that if they wait until after 30 to have babies, their children are going to have birth defects. Mm. It's part of the fear mongering that has been in practice for over a decade. I mean, I, I noticed it certainly um, really becoming much more aggressive in 2007. But today, I mean, the propaganda under this so-called, you know, the new two-child policy, it's also fear-mongering. It's targeting these educated Han Chinese women. Um, I mean, I, I saw an article in the People's Daily in the last year or two that was specifically aimed at 
college students, women in college, and that includes teenagers, telling them that they should hurry and get married and have two children, consider having their babies while they're still in college. And it's really uh, ridiculous on the face of it, but it's also quite frightening when you think Mm. about the capabilities, the coercion in China's uh, history of enforcing, you know, the the one-child policy. There have been so many human rights abuses that have been widely documented, like forced abortions. And um, and so uh, it, it's fundamentally all about controlling women's reproductive lives and controlling their women. So the government really views women as reproductive tools of the state. And and for many decades, you know, the government wanted women to have uh, fewer babies, and now they've done a 180-degree turn. They want uh, especially educated Han Chinese women to have two babies or, or even more. Well, obviously, part of the consequence of the one-child policy was to have more men or boys, and so therefore you've now got this unequal ratio of men to women in terms of marriage prospects. So there are so many more men looking for a partner and women, as you've shown in the various cartoons that have been around, have so many people to pick from. Why should you take so long to get married because it's so plentiful. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, China has uh, probably the worst sex ratio imbalance in the world. I mean, it's very, very bad in India as well. And the Chinese government, according to official statistics, says that there are at least 30 million more men than women. Um, And yet the propaganda is aimed at the women saying, women, why are you being so picky in your choice of a husband? You know, get married and lower your sights. Otherwise, you're going to be too old to mm. find a husband. And and then if you put off child rearing, you know, you, you can't wait too long to have your baby. You better have your baby in your so-called best child rearing years, which is in your 20s. Otherwise, your baby's going to have a birth defect. So this kind of propaganda has been going on um, in various forms since, uh, very aggressively, since 2007. The difference today is that more and more young women are totally rejecting this propaganda. Mm -hmm. And you can also see in the official statistics on births, births are falling dramatically in China. And this, this is viewed as a really alarming problem by the Chinese government, which is really desperate to try to boost birth rates now, um, especially among educated Han women. But Mm. so far, it has failed miserably. And so we've been discussing things that are particularly overt in terms of the messaging, the discrimination and the sexism that is pretty clear and quite blunt, really. But there's also, I guess, the covert ways that culture can influence women, particularly in China. And an example, just one small example that I came across recently was this joke that has done the rounds for quite a number of years now about the fact that there are three genders in China. There is the men, the women and the women PhDs. 
And I had a bit of a double take when I heard it because I thought, no, you don't mean like the PhD as in a doctor, an academic, a scholar. And apparently that is a real joke, um, which is probably not particularly funny to women who have PhDs or are, are seeking to have a PhD such as yourself or, you know, myself. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, that's just what, sadly one example in the oh, sea of incredibly misogynistic jokes that are ultimately aimed at keeping women down. Mm. And in the Chinese government propaganda that you see in the People's Daily or Xinhua News, they specifically warn or women against pursuing their educations too long. So far, they aren't yet saying to women, don't go to college. But definitely they say that, oh, women with master's degrees or PhDs are incredibly unattractive to men. So those women can forget about ever finding a husband. Um, and actually, it does have that kind of misogyny plus the misogyny naturally occurring in society plus the deliberately powerfully orchestrated propaganda campaigns by the government um, and policies that overtly discriminate against the admission of women to a lot of university programs. Mm. You know, these women are required to, for example, score higher than men on the Gaokao, the university entrance exam. So a lot of it is just because the government wants these women who are considered to be so-called high quality, it, it doesn't want them to continue their educations. Mm. It wants them to go back to the home, get married and have babies for the good of the nation. Um, so that's sort of the background to those kinds of sexist jokes. Then you do raise that uh, as an example in the book. It did make me think, and I was reminded of a news story that happened recently. It came out from Japan that they were also doing the same thing. Men with lower exam scores getting into medical school over women who had achieved far beyond them. So it certainly seems to be not just confined to China, but also in other patriarchal societies like Japan, which is quite concerning. Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a, a lot of sexism and gender inequality um, in quite a few East Asian countries, Japan, South Korea as well. Um, I mean, obviously, they're, you know, the entire world is patriarchal. <laughs> so, uh, so varying degrees. Isn't it? <laughs> right. Yeah. But one of the interesting differences uh, between China and Japan and South Korea, for that matter, is that, you know, Japan, um, the Japanese prime minister a few years ago at least recognized that gender inequality, the low participation of women in the workforce was a real problem for the Japanese economy. And so he came up with this policy called Womenomics to try to boost uh, the number of women participating in the workforce to make it easier for them to be hired. And in fact, Japan's female labor force participation has actually risen a little bit. Um, and so, uh, so there are things, of course, it's still really, really a bad problem mm. in Japan. But it's so striking to see that, um, you know, in China, 
China doesn't view the shrinking female labor force participation as a problem. In fact, I I believe that it actually wants women to retreat from the workforce, that the government uh, thinks it's more important to get women to return to the home and leave the the jobs to the men Mm. and to take on, for women to take on this very subservient role of dutiful wife and mother. So... Is it also a stabilising element, their view of creating national stability? Yes. I mean, I write about that in in, uh, both my books, actually. Mm. Um, But particularly in my new book, Betraying Big Brother, I have a chapter on China's patriarchal authoritarianism, where I talk about how basically keeping women down, subjugating women, confining them or trying to push them back into these traditional roles of obedient wife and mother, that's all part of China's attempt to control the population at large, to to exert authoritarian rule. And it's part of an effort by the Communist Party to survive, basically, because uh, the the Communist Party, particularly under the new president, Xi Jinping, is just incredibly paranoid about any potential tiny threat to its survival. And so it sees, I mean, there's been an overall assault on civil society in general over the last few years under Chinese President Xi Jinping. But it particularly sees feminism as a threat because um, the idea that women should control their own bodies, their own reproductive lives, the idea that, oh, you know, women may not want to marry and won't be marrying, won't be having babies, that is seen as just creating chaos and undermining Communist Party rule. So this is one of the reasons why feminism as a whole and the feminist movement, which is which is uh, really grown remarkably over the last few years, why it's seen by the party as such a threat. You're listening to my interview with journalist and scholar Leita Hong Fincher. She uh, is based in New York. She joined me in the studio in Melbourne uh, to talk about her new book, Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China. And uh, Leita has had a great deal of experience living in China and studying there. So she speaks both as an expert and from personal experience. This part is the second part of my interview with later Hong Fincher and uh, it is really looking at in more depth the feminist awakening. Now let's move into the main characters of this book who are real people. I'd like to highlight this interesting tension that we've just been talking about that the government seeking to control and um, exert dominance over the way people make choices and their behaviours. But there's also this pushback from women and uh, feminist activists. And when social media amplifies some people's messages 
often it does get to a point where the government might backtrack a bit or relinquish some control over the situation. And I was interested in the concept, not just of maintaining stability and control, but also of saving face, of being seen to still be in control and not the bad guy, which seems to be quite central to Chinese society as well, the way that it can operate in different scenarios. So what is your thought on how the government behaves in that way of, you know, taking three steps forward and then perhaps responding a bit and moving its position slightly? Yeah, I should qualify by steps forward. I mean, steps forward of taking control. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so in the book, I write about how, first of all, these, these women, um, the feminist five, these, the feminist five are five young women who were jailed in 2015, which is four years ago now for planning to celebrate international women's day by handing out, stickers against sexual harassment on subways and buses and they were there was actually a much larger group of feminist activists that were planning to take part in this activity mm-hmm. in several different chinese cities but on the eve of international women's day chinese police uh, carried out this really sweeping round of arrests in multiple cities um, and then after one day it released uh, some of the other feminist activists and it focused on these five women in Beijing, Guangzhou and Hangzhou and brought them all to the same detention center in Beijing and jailed them for 37 days. What the government was trying to do then was to prevent the possibility of a large scale feminist movement from breaking out but, but that move just totally backfired because it ended up just galvanizing the feminist community in China. Um, but if you think about, so, well, so, so, so the government ended up releasing these five women after mm-hmm. 37 days because there was this, un, this incredible global outcry. And so the women were released. Since then, there's been a very systematic crackdown on women's rights in general, women's rights activism. But if you think about what those the Feminist Five and other feminist activists in 2015 were trying to do. They were just trying to hand out stickers about sexual harassment on subways and buses. But recently, the Chinese government has actually tried to show that, oh, you know, we're not totally sexist. We do uphold gender equality. And so you see subway stations in major cities like Guangzhou and Beijing with signs about sexual harassment on subways. So basically, the government persecutes individual feminist activists. It's trying to wipe out the social movement organized by feminist activists, while at the same time it needs to co-opt the female population in general, because particularly because it's trying to get educated women in particular to have more babies. So it has to proceed very carefully. It can't just totally jail hundreds, if not thousands of feminist activists, because that would just alienate so many Chinese women and make them just furious. Another significant move by the Chinese government very recently was that it um, it announced to employers that that employers needed to stop 
asking women who are applying for jobs whether they're married and what their childbearing status is. So if that ends up being enacted in force, that could be a big deal. I I don't know if it'll be enforced, but it does show that the government is trying to show the Chinese population that it's not totally misogynistic, (laughs) while at the same time, it's treating individual feminist activists very badly, still detaining them, shutting down women's rights centers. Just last year, it banned the most prominent feminist social media account, Feminist Voices. But it's a very complicated uh, confrontation, really, between what the Chinese government is trying to do. It's trying to, to, you know, get rid of feminist activism but then more and more women on the ground are sprouting up all over China and speaking out, you know, demanding an end to all kinds of gender discrimination or an end to sexual violence. So, so that's really this um, this confrontation that is going to it, it's very fraught. It's going to continue for the foreseeable future, I think. Yeah, and it seems like the internet is becoming a really big battleground because that's one way that individuals can express opinions and there's obviously a great deal of censorship in the the internet in China given there's a a massive firewall and various platforms are banned. You can't use Twitter, for example, but they have their own localised platforms to use like uh, Weibo and WeChat. And so you highlight the internet in a particular chapter I'm thinking of where you talk about various influences and one in particular, Li Yuan, who is a journalist for the Wall Street Journal in China or was built a huge following on that platform but wasn't necessarily or wouldn't necessarily call herself a feminist but was saying things that challenged the status quo around gender and I'm interested in that idea as well there are these the feminist five we've got here who are really strong voices who have made it very clear that they're loud and proud to be feminist and then you've got other women in China who may not use the term because it has such a negative connotation now but are still engaging in perhaps feminist activity or thought? Yeah, absolutely. So so I would say that the vast majority of women in China would never call themselves feminist. Um, and of course, there are many reasons for that. I mean, I think all over the world, you have women, you know, in Australia and America who, you know, want equality and justice, but are hesitant to use the label of feminist. Mm-hmm. And you you have obviously in China, the Chinese government is actually has declared feminism to be a really problematic force. And in fact, um, you know, the People's Daily said warned that Western feminism is quote unquote a Uh, a tool of hostile foreign forces trying to interfere in China's internal affairs. So you can understand why so many women hesitate to use that label. But looking beyond the label of feminist, there are so many, just more and more, Uh, young women in China, especially urban women, especially if they've gone to college, who um, are just standing out and speaking out much more about the need for uh, equality, the need for personal dignity. You know, they want to be, they want to have the same opportunities as men. They don't want to be discriminated against. They want an equal shot at getting into university or be, you know, not being sexually harassed in the workplace. 
And so, yeah, the example you referred to, uh, Li Yun, is she's actually now at the New York Times, the Asia technology columnist. But she didn't really embrace the label for herself a feminist until very recently. Um, and yet for many years, I mean, she had this massive following of at least two million followers on uh, Weibo, China's equivalent of Twitter. And um, I mean, I always, I've known her for, for a long time. And I've always said, oh, you're such a great feminist. But then <laughs> she didn't want to call herself that until very recently. But, but she's one of those opinion makers who's really had a huge influence on women across China. And, and so this is why, um, you know, I use the subtitle, Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China, because I really see this happening to so many young women in mm. China. And and it's not even just college-educated women. They're women factory workers are also increasingly demanding equal treatment, demanding, you know, a workplace that's free from sexual harassment. And recently there was a website for factory women's rights that was banned as well because it really is an increase in consciousness among women across classes about their own uh, rights, about needing to stand up for their rights. Yes, and you do also highlight the data around the gender pay gap widening as well, which I'm sure affects those of the working class pretty harshly. So in terms of the Feminist Five and those particular women, I've heard you refer to them and even in this book you say these women were not well known or known at all really. Maybe one who you had actually met previously before they were arrested was known to people as a feminist activist. But that since then they've obviously become fairly iconic and they've also had a great deal of monitoring still what is the situation for them? You detail really in depth, obviously, having spoken to them, their experiences being detained and what happened there. So I think I'll leave people to read it because it's probably best to actually read it in full. But since they've been released, are they still under any kind of investigation or do they still feel threatened in any way in terms of their ability to engage in feminist activism? Yes, well, the Feminist Five are quite famous now. I mean, they got so much international news coverage when they were uh, jailed in 2015. The, the case against them was never formally dropped, so they are technically still criminal suspects. And, I, I, you know, I'm not going to give the details of what's happening with each one of no. them yeah. because they are still being monitored. And there is a very systematic crackdown on feminist activists ongoing. And uh, most recently, there was a, a very influential anti-sexual violence center in uh, Guangzhou that was forced to shut down. But the thing is, the thing about the women's rights movement is that it, it has gone way beyond those five women. Those five women were are really a symbol, I see, mm. of a much larger feminist movement or women's rights movement that is now spread. It continues to grow in different forms. The Me Too movement is one expression of that movement. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary 
how uh, popular that became last year. There were thousands of uh, university students and recent graduates last year who signed their real names to petitions demanding that universities take sexual harassment seriously, and that included men as well as women. And there are, you know, ongoing Me Too lawsuits. There, there are brave young women, you know, continuing to step forward and tell their own stories. And so this is an ongoing movement that's very hard for the government to handle. Mm. Um, yeah, but it's uh, it, it's such a multifaceted movement. So there, there are, you know, the Feminist Five who are very famous, but then there's so many. By and large, I would say this movement is full of nameless people. Um, and by the way, the Me Too hashtag was one of the top 10 most censored topics on the Chinese internet in 2018, according to this study by University of Hong Kong. You highlight there also the power of the internet and the fact that really people can engage with this issue in a range of ways personally. And also, as you say, some people have moved overseas and continued to advocate more vocally from a distance. Yes, that's, uh, I think, one of the reasons why the women's rights movement has continued is because the founding editor of Feminist Voices, um, which was uh, banned last year, this um, prominent feminist uh, social media site, is now in New York. And she's started what she calls a new battleground in the feminist movement. And so, you know, she has a lot of followers among Chinese feminists who are studying or working in the U.S. There are different groups sprouting up in other countries like the U.K. and Canada for Chinese feminists uh, abroad. And they, you know, there's this, this global exchange of ideas and people, the flow of people. And so it, so the Chinese government is not totalitarian, as mm. try as it might. It can't completely wipe out, you know, all communications about women's rights or feminism on the Internet. So in spite of this incredible censorship and persecution of individual activists, you still see there there is still space there for a lot of resistance. And just finally... You do highlight in a chapter in this book the fact that gender equality as an aim and a goal is not new to China. It was actually set from on high as a really important aim in different times in history. One that's particularly clear because it's in the constitution is when Mao Zedong came to power and that was one of their core goals was also to have women take on male roles, particularly in male-dominated fields, to contribute equally to the economy and so i'm i'm just interested in that element and whether any of the women now look to those periods at all or any of those iconic women who were part of the movements whether it's early in the 20th century or in the mid 20th century and think of those kind of legacies yes certainly as you mentioned and you know i write about the, the beginning of the communist era under mao zedong um with the communist revolution in 1949 technically you know uh, there was gender e- equality. But but interestingly, the young feminist activists today look far prior to that, to the turn of the century. And one of the most influential feminist revolutionaries for them is Qiu Jin, who was a feminist revolutionary who wrote about women's emancipation and I write about her in in the book as well. She's she's a fascinating figure who's a cross-dresser who abandoned her husband and children to go to Japan 
and uh, write about the emancipation of women there. And then she got involved in uh, efforts to overthrow the Qing Empire, and she was beheaded in 1905. And so originally, the independent feminist activists in China today used um, one of her poetry songs as their anthem, the anthem of the movement. Then they changed it a few years ago, adopting the melody from the Broadway hit Les Miserables. And their new feminist anthem is is actually what I translate as a, a song for all women. But but they still look to figures like Tiu Jin um, and He Yinzhen, another revolutionary feminist at the turn of the century. Um, they don't look to uh, the early communist icons of gender equality because uh, th- that's just not something that they see as real feminism. Mm. And, and uh, these these activists today are completely independent of the Communist Party and that is why they're seen as such a threat because they, they don't want, you know, they're not working with or for the Communist Party whereas, of course, you know, this top-down gender equality, the policies of gender equality in the early Communist era were all... Uh, Fundamentally, there was still about controlling women. Yeah. They wanted women to all participate in the workforce mm. en masse, but it was all for the good of the new communist nation. And those women, you know, were still serving the Communist Party. And so they're mm. not seen as heroes by these young feminist activists. It was all about economic production. Right. Yeah. Later, it's been so fascinating speaking with you and I really appreciate your time. Congratulations on this book, Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China, which is out through Verso, I believe. And was it picked up by Penguin? Yeah, and in Australia, I think it's Bloomsbury yeah. who's publishing it now. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And you've been listening to my interview with Leita Hong Fincher, who is the author of two books. We spoke about both of them. In fact, her first book um, was called Leftover Women, The Resurgence of Gender Inequality in China. And then uh, the one that we're finishing on there, which is her newest book, is called Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Revolution in China and later joined me in the studio uh, last week for that pre-recorded chat when she was visiting Australia and um, doing a bit of a, a week's trip roughly from New York to talk all things women for International Women's Day, which was last Friday. You're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, 102.7 FM on your dial. And I'm Amy Mullins. I'm with you up until noon today, as per usual. And I'm really delighted to have with me a special guest in the studio. He is uh, Christopher Browning. He's an emeritus professor, and uh, he was working for a large portion of his career at the University of North Carolina. And uh, he's got a range of research interests and has published widely in journals and books on those topics, in particular uh, Nazi decision-making in regards to the origins of the final solution, uh, which is, of course was a very deadly final solution in the uh, the Holocaust. Second
And uh, he also covers off on a range of um, issues that are, have been um, quite murky and difficult to, to pin down uh, until recently, which is around the behaviour and motives of various people involved in that final solution, not only in um, concentration camps, for example, but particularly in uh, the mobile killing squads that were sent around um, in Eastern Europe to kill uh, Jews from so many different countries over there during World War II. And then also um, Christopher has focused a lot on the use of survivor testimony um, and also one of his uh, lectures, the topic of his lectures, is around uh, Holocaust rescue and those who rescued people from um, certain death, really. So such a range of expertise that Christopher brings and uh, he joins me now. Hi there. Hello. Hi. Thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. So you are in Melbourne for a lecture series of which you'll be delivering three lectures. Uh, the first will be tomorrow night at 7.30pm. Uh, yeah, this is actually my fourth visit to Melbourne and I've taught three times at Monash and once at Melbourne Uni. Uh, and at the times at Monash, I've also given an evening lecture series alongside the class. So this will be the third set of evening lectures that I've given at Caulfield. And it's been a wonderful experience. The audience there has always just been fantastic. Mm. Yeah, I did see that you were at the Wheeler Centre as well um, a while ago, giving another lecture there. So That was part of one of the series, yes. Right, yeah. yes. Well, it's a, a really important um, thing, to, I guess, to have these public lecture series because it gives the general public access to new ideas and research that they may not be exposed to. Um, and of course, your career is quite prolific. Um, and I'd like to start out by situating where you came from in your scholarship um, into the, the timeline of historiography of the, the Holocaust. So we know that um, at the end of World War II, there was kind of this um, period of silence where there wasn't a lot said necessarily about or or deep analysis about what has happened. And a lot of people or um, Jewish people would say they weren't believed when they talked about their experience if they had been a survivor um, from a concentration camp. And it was in the late 1960s that we saw the trial of Adolf Eichmann, which really um, publicised and made the public more aware of the extent of the crimes. But, of course, we saw many trials during that period um, that were, you know, revealing what had gone on. Um, so in terms of your career and, and your scholarship, um, when did you decide to focus your attention and your life to work on this area and, um, and what really inspired you to do so? Yeah, that really came at the very end of the 60s, the beginning of the 1970s. As you said, there was a, a brief period after World War II with the what the Allies called the war crimes trials because they hadn't sorted out the different persecutory and murderous programs of the Nazis, uh, and it was all lumped together as, quote, war crimes trials or Nazi atrocities. Uh, and then we got involved in the Cold War, and interest in that more or less declined. Uh, I think Jewish survivors talked a great deal among themselves, but what they found is no one else wanted to listen for the, the 1950s. So it really became something that was not so much overt and public, but something that they learned to keep to themselves. Uh, the Eichmann trial, uh, where Jewish survivors are now brought to the witness stand as part of the trial, uh, 
gave them, in a sense, a, a platform uh, to tell the story, not just as Nazi atrocities, but how it was experienced by the victims. In a sense, the trial had two parts. There was the documents brought out to convict Eichmann, and what we would now call, in, in a sense, the impact phase. Uh, what did this mean to human beings, where the victims got to tell their story? Uh, and that opened things up, I think, considerably for a new generation. Uh, I myself came to it a little bit different. A lot of my Israeli colleagues, it was the Eichmann trial. Mm. As hearing that as teenagers uh, in high school, about to go to university, that became deeply interested. my own trajectory was a bit different, uh, that I was more involved in the anti-war protest against Vietnam uh, at the end of in my university career. Uh, and uh, the whole issue of you know, how do governments, particularly since I had campaigned for Johnson in 64 against Goldwater, uh, by 68 we were involved in, in this war that I thought was a, a, not just a terrible mistake, but also immoral and not justified uh, and how had people I considered both intelligent and good people had somehow gotten us into this this quagmire so my interest came a little bit more out of the American situation uh, but they did coincide uh, in, in the sense by the late 60s uh, uh, I think you had a new generation coming out that was no longer complacent about a belief in inevitable progress about the you know undoubted uh, unchallenged virtues of the victorious powers after World War II, uh, where very clearly here you had a you know you had to beat Hitler. It was very clearly this was a war where good one of those few wars where you you knew who the good guys were yeah. and you knew they had to win. Uh, Vietnam muddied all of that. Uh, many of the colonial struggles, Algeria and so forth, muddied that for Europeans. Uh, so we were in an age of much greater uncertainty where we could begin to look at the Holocaust uh, as something that could give us insight that became important now. Uh, it wasn't just something in the past, but something that was spoken was relevant to how do governments adopt and find people to implement criminal policies. Yes, and such extreme policies. Mm-hmm. It's you know, been unprecedented in history, isn't it? That, that scale of mass killing and industrialization of, of killing. Yes, we, of course, genocide, unfortunately, has been with us. But this was, mm. in a sense, the case of the most advanced modern country employing all of the capabilities of a modern bureaucracy to organize, modern technology to carry out, to harness those to genocide, in a sense, put the Nazi genocide of the Jews historically in a kind of singular position as it had these characteristics that made it different than previous genocides. Yes, and in terms of uh, how the final solution, as it's termed, um, came about, there has been a long scholarly debate around this and there isn't necessarily you know the one document that proves that was the time and there's the order signed by Hitler um, there is this what what is called an intentionalist versus a functionalist debate that we hear about and things have evolved thankfully since the kind of polar ends of that um, debate but I was interested to read that you yourself um, at one point termed yourself a um, moderate functionalist in the sense that you had had thought that 
there is this idea where um, various functionaries, Nazi functionaries, such as Adolf Eichmann and Himmler and um, various, you know, key heads of departments would anticipate the desire or or wants of Hitler and in some ways compete for um, for status and success uh, in and in some ways the um, extreme version of functionalism is that that's how that final solution eventuates could you share with us your scholarly position on how you think um, the final solution really came to a head because as you say you know there's no doubt that Hitler had anti-semitic views in the 1930s but um, one would think that perhaps he didn't have a grand plan by that point Yes, I think it's important to look at the convergence of different elements to how this came about and not have a kind of monocausal explanation. Uh, And quite often in history, uh, historians are divided between those that try to explain why things happened the way they did in history by the decisions that the leaders take and those leaders taking those decisions because they are realizing an ideological goal that they hold. So it's the ideas in the mind of the leader leads to the decisions they take that leads to things happening. And this is the intentionalist explanation. Yep. Things happen because leaders intend them. Uh, the other, in a sense, goes back to Marx that says, you know, men make history but seldom make the history they want or expect. That we work within all sorts of parameters that control what we do, uh, that limit the options that we have or even what we can think about as what is possible. Uh, And so these are referred to often as structuralists or functionalists. How does the system function? What are the structures within which we operate that basically set parameters around the choices that human beings make and shape those choices uh, in a very contingent way, depending what the situation is at the time, certain things will seem possible, certain decisions will be made, and therefore it's a very fluid situation that in fact evolves as situations change. So these were the two sort of extremes. What I called the ultra-intentionalist position was that Hitler knew from the very beginning he was going to do this, he waited for the time and opportunity, gave the orders as he found the key points uh, to opportune moments to do so and we explain everything by Hitler's decision making and motivated by his ideology the extreme functionalist was basically nobody made decisions bad things happened welling up from beneath uh, and that one thing happened after another in a kind of chaotic and haphazard way Uh, I don't think either of those extremes is going to get us anywhere what we have to look at is the convergence between the ideology at the top which sanctions and legitimizes and ensures that everybody understands solving the Jewish question is the goal even if you don't know what that means. You know, when, when have you solved it? When have you gotten there? Mm. It takes the Nazis a long time to figure that out. But Hitler is always there to make sure that everyone knows the problem has not yet been solved and it's a high priority and that it must be solved. So this is going to lead to an evolution of Nazi Jewish policy. And that evolution will take place in part, as you just mentioned, as various people vying for Hitler's favor, uh, bringing to him various proposals. He is not a micromanager working from above. Uh, He is kind of at the switchboard uh, signaling red, green, or yellow traffic lights depending upon things that are brought to him and how he wants uh, to move from that point on. Uh, Ian Kershaw wrote a great biography of Hitler and found in a mid-1930s speech one of Hitler's functionaries explaining to his audience of 
Nazi wannabes, uh, that the good Nazi is not one who waits for an orders and instruction. He, quote, works towards the Fuhrer. That is, he anticipates what needs to be done, he understands the implications of the ideology, and he does all the things necessary to make that come about without being micromanaged from above. Uh, and this, in effect, is, is the way the Nazi system worked. Uh, so you have people at the top who set the ideological priorities, you have this middle level that works towards the Fuhrer, and then you get to the bottom where you have the, the people who are basically assigned the task of actually doing the face-to-face killing. And I think you have a different set of dynamics at work there, which is what I tried to to deal with in another book called Ordinary Men, uh, that our vision that all the Nazi killers were these sadistic ideological fanatics uh, simply isn't the case. They Mm. required... uh, participants uh, from all walks of life, of all types, not just uh, deeply committed Nazi zealots to carry out the killing process. Yes, that's a really great point. And um, you highlighted the fact that, as you're saying, um, Hitler didn't really necessarily be, wasn't a a command and control leader. Um, He was signalling what he liked or didn't like based on what various functionaries were doing. Um, But you also said or wrote uh, in one of your essays that um, in his function as arbiter, Hitler in turn sought to avoid totally antagonising or alienating any of his close followers, even the most incompetent among them, such as Rosenberg and Ribbentrop. Yeah, uh, basically uh, Hitler is trying to be the Teflon dictator as he doesn't want to make decisions that anger any of his various constituencies. And and the Nazi movement is a coalition of discontents. He puts together different people that had different grievances. uh, And he does often the difficulty in governing is that if you choose to solve one problem, you're going to alienate somebody else. One of the reasons the Nazi movement becomes so deadly against particular groups, uh, Jews, gypsies, or Roma and Sinti, asocials, are the people who had no clout, had no, no say in the system, mm. uh, or the populations of occupied countries. All those that had no purchase within the Nazi system are the expendable ones, the people in which uh, you can radic- against which the system can radicalize very rapidly, even if it remains in gridlock in trying to solve other problems that would pit Germans against Germans. So you create this sense of accomplishment, this sense of historic... Uh, achievement by unloading, in effect, on the most vulnerable sectors of European society. Yes, and a lot of people might find it difficult to understand how uh, the general German population might have gone along with something that even at the basic level discriminated against Jewish businesses, the you know people on the street, that kind of initial level of discrimination that was put into law uh, against Jews and then the growing violence that was more and more visible. Um, it's kind of hard to understand the acceptance of that. In terms of reading the primary documents, I found it interesting that a lot of German Jews often didn't have perceived themselves as Jewish. They perhaps had a background, a family background that was Jewish, but that wasn't kind of their sole driving part of their identity and probably identified more as German than they did as Jewish if they had to, to choose. But 
a lot of the um, the interesting work that George Moss has done is around um, how the Jews were portrayed and the cultural elements around the Third Reich. Um, and I was interested in this relevance in in relation to how your ordinary men might have perceived the enemy, so to speak. Um, and how did the the, the Germans? Um, the German population, but particularly now moving into your key book, um, Ordinary Men, Reserve Police Battalion 101 and the Final Solution in Poland. How did those ordinary men who were co- co-opted into the reserve police view the enemy um, in inverted commas? And, you know, pres- presumably the majority of them were Jews in Eastern Europe. Yeah, let me back up just yeah. a little bit uh, and pick up a couple of, on a couple of things that you said earlier. All of European society had a anti-Semitic tradition. That mm-hmm. is, for 2,000 years, there has been a Christian-Jewish adversarial relationship. Uh, and certainly, over from the Middle Ages on, this often took the form of a very broad, negative stereotype. People talked about the Jew, uh, or the Jews, as if they're all the same, mm-hmm. and attributed to them essential negative characteristics. So this is the way, this is embedded in European culture. So it's not just Germans, but Europeans in all countries that could have heard things said about Jews that would not have set off alarm bells, would not have raised red flags. Uh, It was, in fact, considered the common sense, really, of the time that, one, Jews were different, and two, they were different in a bad way. (laughs) Uh, So that's a kind of a broad background. When, for the Nazis, uh, this, of course, is a great priority and something that they're deeply obsessed with. It's not just a problem, it is the essential problem in society. Many Germans never bought into that, but nonetheless, none of the red flags went up that said anybody that obsessed with this, there must be something dangerous and wrong here. Uh, So that the Nazi priority in being obsessed about Jews didn't ring the alarm bells, uh, didn't alert Germans to the dangers of Nazism in that regard because they were relatively indifferent to the fate of Jews, didn't sympathize or identify with them, no sense of solidarity with them, so that Nazis could proceed against Jews with a kind of open field. And as one historian said, you know, many Germans became anti-Semites because they became Nazis far more than anti-Semites became Nazis because they were anti-Semites. Hitler's success gives him the... Leeway gives him, in a sense, the the freedom to intensify persecution against Jews, mm-hmm. which then uh, becomes a kind of vicious circle. The more you persecute, the more you exclude. The less Germans know any Jews, the more they're isolated. By the time German Jews were put on the trains to the death camps, they really have been so isolated that most Germans have not had any contact with them for five years. I mean, the, the Nuremberg Laws are in 1935. You can't socialize with, the, with the, between Germans and Jews without endangering yourself of being accused of having illegal sexual relations. Uh, so that, uh, and then of course by 38, they've taken away all their property. You can't even shop at a Jewish store because there aren't any Jewish stores. So the Jews have been really totally isolated by then, and, and Germans simply aren't in contact with them as human beings, they simply have a vision in their mind of what the regime has increasingly painted them as. As one of the policemen who gave an interview in, that I was working, materials I was working with, says, you know, anti-Semitism was simply the, the, the air we breathed. Uh, it was very hard to step outside that, get out of the bubble. 
mm. by, after the Nazis have been in power for, for by then, by nine or ten years, and have any outside yardstick by which to measure how crazy things had gotten. Uh, so that... Uh, and then you add to that, of course, they're at war, their natural instinct. Of course, you serve your country in war. You're sent to an occupied territory. You're amidst a hostile population. Uh, your group is your social world. Uh, if you alienate your comrades, there's no other place to turn. People will do in that circumstance, just like American troops in Vietnam, German reserve police in Poland will do things there they would never do back in Hamburg or an American would do back in San Diego. Uh, and so you're talking about a, an environment, a setting that uh, is going to be very different. It's wartime, it's occupation, you're isolated, you, you feel a sense of beleaguered, the, the population out there is, quote, the enemy. Uh, and and that, I think, is, is part of the background we have to understand of why when a unit like Reserve Police Battalion 101 is given orders to kill, most of the men comply. Now, the, the, there were several things about that unit that made it a very key case study. Uh, unlike many of the killing units, it was not recruited out of the SS. It was not recruited out of highly Nazified people. It was not recruited out of younger populations socialized in a Hitler school, you know, Nazi educational curriculum in the Hitler Youth. These were middle-aged men, uh, average age 39 and a half, who are not conscripted for for wartime duty until 1942. Uh, so that their formative period is the Weimar Republic, not Nazi period. They were mostly working class. That's a social class that was more highly supportive of the socialists and the communists. The, the two groups remained in opposition to Hitler rather than other parts of the population that were were captured by the Nazis in higher percentages. And they came from one of the cities that was the least Nazified city, Hamburg. Yeah. Nazis referred to it as Red Hamburg. It was a city where they had trouble with. So if you were trying to choose a group of people least likely to be killers on behalf of the Nazi regime, it would be middle-aged, working-class men from Hamburg. Yeah. This is stacking the deck. It's not just a cross-section of German society. This is stacking the deck against the probability they would become Nazi killers. They have very little time for indoctrination, very little time for training. Uh, they are assembled and sent off to Poland, unlike earlier killing squads, who did have quite a bit of indoctrination, quite a bit of exposure as the ruling master race in Eastern Europe over subject populations before they begin to actually murder people in large numbers, uh, and were composed of fairly high percentages of Nazi party members. This battalion was not. So for that reason, that's one reason why they're very key, that they, mm -hmm. that they demonstrate what a unit can do even if it doesn't have high percentage of Nazis, even if it isn't carefully selected, even if it isn't from a more youthfully, more Nazified age group, uh, even if it doesn't have special training, even if it doesn't have extensive indoctrination. And the second key thing is that before the first killing, the major assembles the men outside the village where they're going to carry out this massacre and basically says, those of you who don't feel up to it, you can step out. No one was coerced. They all knew that they didn't have to shoot. Uh, and some of them turned in their rifles immediately. Others, during that massacre or thereafter, uh, would say, I can't shoot any longer. So it was the unwritten rule of the battalion that anyone who didn't want to be a trigger puller could 
exempt himself and no sergeant or corporal or lieutenant could force them to do that because they knew that the major had had basically set the policy that people were not to be forced to shoot if they didn't feel they could do it. So it's that combination of those two factors. Mm. Uh, And then you add to that, this was a unit that once it began killing, was involved in either shooting or sending to Treblinka 83,000 people. 500 men had a body count of 83,000. So it, it, it destroys that whole notion that only special sadists and only special Nazi zealots uh, and only people specially prepared and specially selected can do this kind of thing. You can, in fact, mobilize ordinary people and, in certain circumstances, turn them into professional killers. And that's what the story of that unit was about. Yes, it it is pretty shocking. And the way that you describe it, it is so unlikely that the rate of people who did participate was so high i believe was it around 80 percent yeah my estimate was that there was that about 80 percent actually continued to pull the trigger about 20 percent uh either the first day or very soon thereafter said i can't do this and took advantage of the major's offer they continued for the most part to continue to do supportive things that is they would still round up jews out of their homes take them to the marketplace drive them to the train put them on the death trains to treblinka uh, or form the cordons that would surround the shooting sites even if they didn't do the shooting but they wouldn't be the person who actually pulled the trigger and just that degree of division of labor just doing everything except actually pulling the trigger gave them a sense of distance from what was happening mm. and a sense that they weren't responsible. Someone else was doing it. Uh, so we also discovered out of this how effective division of labor is in ameliorating the sense of responsibility in what you're participating in. Yes, and certainly you highlight some of the quotes from their interviews with uh, police when they're being interviewed some 20 or so years later Um, and some of them say that they were I guess belittled or called names by their fellow um, policemen and were I guess aware of the social outcast status they might receive if they were too clearly distancing themselves from, I guess, the dirty work, so to speak, of of actually doing it because these other men were doing it, the majority were, and um, a lot of those men, you know, utilising alcohol um, and other things to get through that. And then these other men, you know, loitering around markets or standing by the the cars, guarding cars. Was that part of the reason why um, more men perhaps took part because they didn't want to be seen as an out in yeah, the outer? Yes, I, I think certainly peer pressure and desire to not be considered weak by your comrades, to be, cons- to be v- viewed as someone who is doing your share. I mean, the, the battalion has this dirty work to do, and they view it as dirty work, uh, except for some of the real zealots who, mm. who get high on killing people, who actually learn to enjoy killing. The Most of the people shooting still consider it dirty work. Uh, and those who exempt themselves then are are shifting the dirty work to others. So if the vast majority of the evaders, the 20% that wouldn't pull the trigger, uh, the way in which they negotiated this was to say, I am too weak. They didn't say the policy is immoral. They didn't say the regime is doing a terrible thing. They didn't say this is cold-blooded murder. 
Uh, basically, they took upon themselves the onus of saying they were too weak, which perversely legitimized the behavior of the tough killers as being the desirable thing that real men would want to be able to do even if they came up short and had to accept the stigma of being too weak to do it. Mm -hmm. So perversely in letting themselves out, they were still validating what the battalion was doing. Uh, Now, we know in other cases when people said they wouldn't shoot, an individual could get away with it. The line you could not cross was to try to persuade others not to shoot. So if you if you said, I can't shoot, generally that was okay. But if you either proclaimed the policy as immoral uh, or you tried to persuade others to join you, then you crossed the line and that's when uh, real pressure would be exerted uh, upon you. You wouldn't be court-martialed for disobeying an order. No one wanted in a court Marshal a public, you know, examination of I couldn't shoot on you know helpless women and children. You would be court-martialed for subversion of morale. You were trying to persuade yeah. others not to to follow battalion policy. Uh, so uh, the people who evaded, in a sense, had a fairly narrow uh, needle to thread uh, that would allow them both to remain socially within the battalion and not uh, punished, uh, but still have uh, create the space in which they wouldn't have to pull the trigger themselves. Yes. Um, and then there were a couple of examples I found um, particularly interesting. You highlighted some that gave great detail in terms of the reasons why they felt freer to decide not to take part. And one um, was said that they were not a career policeman, did not want to become one, and was rather an independent, skilled craftsman who had a business back home, was thinking about other things, and, you know, it, it probably had less of a um, social investment in that situation than some of the other men who perhaps that was part of their, became part of their identity, or at least having that comradeship. Yes, most of the people drafted into the battalion were unskilled workers. Mm. That is, if they were an engineer building a submarine in Hamburg, they weren't going to be sent to Poland. Uh, But if you were a dock worker or a restaurant waiter or a truck driver or something, well, then you would get drafted because you didn't have an irreplaceable skill. So for them to put on a police uniform, and have the prospect of the social mobility that perhaps staying in the police after the war as a much more prestigious profession, career, uh, from being a unskilled worker. Uh, this was, I think, a very uh, important attempt for them to, in a sense, to... to uh, to make something out of the situation that they were in. And so uh, the temptation uh, to, you know, be the best policeman you could be uh, by the standards with the Nazis considered a good policeman mm. is very great because it might open up the avenues of, a, of a, what for them would have been an immense step up in their social standing. Yes. And there's one element that is interesting in terms of how... Um, it's all brought together the context the cultural context that we're discussing um you wrote a chapter in a book called visions of community which is really about this concept of the volksgemeinschaft the national community and you highlight how that plays a role in these um battalions of ordinary men and uh, and that 
the, that it was part of, one part of many other reasons why um, they were more likely to engage and feel part of a cohesive whole or a bigger picture and that they're part of one group and the Jewish people are part of a, an entirely other group. Um, could you share with us how that did play a role and what, what to you the Volksgemeinschaft meant? Yes, initially the term Volksgemeinschaft has been translated simply as the people's community mm. or the community of the people. Because folk is people uh, in general. Uh, but it's a word yeah. that has no it has so many different shades of meaning that the, that the translated as people uh, simply doesn't capture that. Mm. So it's important to understand how that term was transformed by the Nazis and appropriated. At the beginning of World War I, uh, when Germany, before the war, had been very divided and fragmented in society, lots of internal tensions, the government refused to democratize, the largest party were the Social Democrats, but the uh, unfair districting meant there were always more votes than they deserved, fewer delegates than the number of votes they had uh, in terms of what they should have had in the Reichstag. Uh, and excluded uh, from from share of power. Uh, and uh, so the tensions in society between uh, rural and urban, working class and others was very great. Uh, and, at the, and also in Germany, there had been a long tradition of, of quarrels between Catholics and Protestants. So at the beginning of the war, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm gives a speech in which, uh, as the, when the war declared, he says he knows now uh, no parties, no confessions, no classes, only Germans. And in almost every diary or memoir of that period, this was a moment of brief intoxication of unity, a sense that people really now had overcome their divisions. This was now going to be this great national venture in which everyone was now going to be together. And it wasn't intoxication. They got high on that temporary sense of unity. Well, of course, the burden of the war fractures all of that over time. But the the high was still quite in people's memory. So after the war, different political groups, of course, compete for can they capture that sense of unity again, use that. And the way the Nazis appropriate the term Volksgemeinschaft, the people's community, is to basically turn it from the people's community into the racial community and that the people will be understood by, by race. So rather than being an inclusive term, it becomes an exclusive term. You define the Volksgemeinschaft by who is not in it and who are not in it are Jews, Roma and Sinti, gays, asocials, uh, handicapped people, all of those that are viewed as blemished and damaged. They're not part of this perfect image of the Aryan perfection that, that the Nazis are trying to you know, identify themselves as. So uh, the Volksgemeinschaft then becomes this community defined by who isn't in it. But th- what that also has the effect of, particularly by Nazi is you is your, your obligation is only to your own people, only to your own race. Uh, the notion of universal moral obligation of equality between peoples is, of course, the total anathema of what the Nazis are about. 
They're about the self-assertion of Germans to rule others, to gain more territory, to grow, and that's only done at the expense of everybody else. Uh, So what you do is you create a kind of public morality of us against them, uh, genocide as self-defense. Everyone is out to get us, and only if we do anything that's necessary to protect ourselves can we survive. And so it creates a situation uh, in which Carrying out, as perverse as this sounds, carrying out the mass murder of people who are of the enemy race is not a crime. They may think of what they're doing as dirty and as unpleasant. They do not think of themselves as criminals. They have divorced, in a sense, the act of murder of Jews and others from a sense of criminality. Uh, And in fact, it's a moral obligation to defend the German folk against all those people that threaten them. Mm. So this ability to create this us-them world. Uh, And most modern genocides are, in fact, justified and carried out as self-defense. That we are the the perpetrators, in fact, say, we are the victims, we are the threatened ones, and only if we get rid of this grave danger can we survive. Uh, And in a sense, it was a Nazi appropriation of the Volksgemeinschaft. Turn it into racial exclusivity that exempted all the other populations of Europe, as well as the Jews and whatever within Germany, from what Helen Fine called the community of human obligation that allows ordinary Germans, ordinary men, in fact, to kill their neighbors and their fellow Europeans. Yes. Well, it certainly is a break from um, traditional practice of war, where in World War I, um, you know, there was still some level of the rules of war in the sense that it was combatant, combatant against combatant. And in World War II, it's entirely transformed, where Germany uh, is attacking not just Russian soldiers, but, of course, Russians and Polish people. These are, as you said earlier, women and children, elderly men. Um, they're not just men of fighting age anymore. So I guess is that um, one way in which you can transform what a soldier might normally perceive to be a civilian who is not part of a traditional war setting as being the enemy? Yes. I mean, uh before the Germans invade the Soviet Union, in fact, Hitler gives to his generals a famous speech in which he says, you must rid yourself of the notion this is a conventional war, that we'll fight it like we did in France. This is an ideological war, this is a race war. Uh, And so it's a war with no holes barred. That they very explicitly lifted the protections of the civilian population that were part of German martial law that applied to the West had applied to the Western Front because the Soviet Union had not signed the Geneva Convention. Mm. They said, our hands are free. We don't have to do that as either. And of course, then they, in fact, premeditatedly carried out terrible atrocities, uh, blaming it on the Soviet Union as retaliation, but was, in fact, utterly premeditated and ordered before they even crossed the border. Uh, so, yes, they were very clear we were going to fight in Eastern Europe what they called a war of annihilation a race war, an ideological war. The distinction between civilian and combatant simply wasn't there. And it went even further in the sense that the identity of communism 
has a racial identity is Jewish communism, Judeo-Bolshevism. The identity of the soldier is also that with the partisan, the, the, the fighter behind the front who's not in uniform, so any civilian can be a partisan, and every partisan can be a Jew. So it's the Jew equals the partisan equals the communist, and you have this whole... Uh, interlocking set of targets then that basically leaves you free to shoot any, anybody you want. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, that's certainly how the, the Nazis proceeded uh, uh, in, after the attack on the Soviet Union. Yes. When, of course, the final solution begins. Yes, that's exactly. That's the environment in which the final solution begins. Mm, mm. Um, and so just closing out on this um, this chapter i guess that we're talking about on ordinary men and the reserve uh, police battalions in terms of because they were part of the einsatzgruppen or co-opted into it at various points um we we know that often those groups that were kind of roaming different countries in eastern europe um would often eventually step back from the shooting or killing themselves and would supervise locals and you know get them to do the dirty work um, in inverted commas. Did that happen for the the reserve police's experience? Were there instances where they were um, overseeing or supervising or coercing or forcing locals to do their work, the bad work of mass killing? Dependent geographically. That Mm. is, in Poland, the Germans were very worried about Polish resistance, and so you did not create large units of armed Polish auxiliary police. Uh, you did have Polish municipal police, so-called blue police, they were blue uniforms, who they used for guarding ghettos, who they would enlist to help clear ghettos. But you didn't have large mobile killing units of, of, of Poles. Mm. When you got to the Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, Latvia, there indeed the Nazis did create an auxiliary police, uh, and they would be supervised by German order police, trained by German order police. Uh, and in many parts then, much of the killing is done by native populations enlisted, armed by the Germans, led by the Germans, but uh, the manpower coming from the from the native populations. Uh, and of course, people were also recruited then uh, from the prisoner of war camps. Uh, the Nazis encirclement movements in the, in the year of 1941 captured large numbers of uh, Russian prisoners, many of whom they left to starve to death, uh, which they starved in the millions by, by, the, by the spring of 1942, uh, that is barely nine months into that war, over two million Soviet prisoners of war had died. They had a higher body count of Soviet military POWs died at that point than they had killed Jews. A killing of Jews doesn't surpass the number of Soviet POW victims until they begin the assault on the Polish ghettos in the spring of 1942. And then, of course, that number quickly passes uh, the the fatality rate of of Soviet POWs. Uh, But from the POW camps, they would offer so-called borderland populations, Ukrainians, Lithuanians, Latvians, a way out if they would come and work for the Germans. So for many of these people, it was starve or be a a collaborator, uh, and uh, they chose collaboration. Uh, others volunteer. I mean, we we know that many of the many of the locals, in fact, 
rushed to the coming in Germans, greeted them uh, as much preferable to Stalin, uh, and offered to serve the Germans, often under the illusion that this would gain them a path to independence. Hitler had no intention of giving Eastern European peoples independence, but if they wanted to fool themselves, uh, he was perfectly willing to take advantage of that. So you had both volunteers as well as people who came into German collaboration because the alternative was to starve to death in a POW camp or join the Germans. Uh, So it's a whole spectrum of of motives for why uh, large numbers of Ukrainians uh, and Lithuanians and Latvians ended up in the German auxiliary police and provided a fair amount of the manpower uh, for the executions on Soviet territory, not in in Poland. Uh, There, most of the killing was done by the Germans. And Poles had a rather subsidiary role. As I said, the blue police guarded the ghettos. The Germans certainly set up uh, inducements for informers. And so Mm -hmm. for Jews in Poland, the great fear is when they hide, they're going to be informed on and and uncovered. Uh, And that was the the main threat that they felt from their Polish neighbors. Not that their Polish neighbor was going to kill them, but that someone among their neighbors was going to inform on them if their hiding place was discovered. Yes. Yes, certainly the fear of informing was, you know, in Poland, it was in Germany as well, regular German citizens worried that any action they might take is looked upon as suspicious. And I can see how that might shut down any kind of dissent or dissenting view as well. Christopher, it's been fantastic to speak with you. I've run out of time, unfortunately, um, but I really appreciate your time and expertise and uh, I'm really glad that you could be able to share three lectures um, at Monash University, public lectures, which are coming up, one tomorrow, um, which starts at 7.30pm at the Caulfield campus at Monash University and it's around humanitarian relief and Holocaust rescue, the story of Tracy Strong Jr. The second lecture is... uh, the use of and sorry the use of past and understanding the current crisis of democracy um, which you've written a fantastic article in the New York Review of Books recently on a related topic uh, which certainly draws parallels between Nazi Germany and the Trump administration and then finally um, you're talking about reflections on a career in Holocaust history and you'll also be drawing on the book that we've been discussing Ordinary Men so yeah thank you so much for joining me Christopher and um, good luck with your time here in your lectures. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Christopher Browning. He is a professor emeritus and uh, up until recently was based at the University of North Carolina and he's now um, retired but still doing great work by helping us better understand history. Uh, You can, as I said, look up the details on his lecture series through the Australian Centre for Jewish Civilisation at Monash University. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.